Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 27 and 28, from Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And now, chapter 27, The Yankee and the King Travel Incognito. Just about bedtime, I took the king to my private quarters to cut his hair and help him get the hang of the lowly raiment he was to wear. The high classes wore their hair banged across the forehead, but hanging to the shoulders the rest of the way around, whereas the lowest ranks of commoners were banged fore and aft both. The slaves were bangless and allowed their hair free growth, so I inverted a bowl over his head and cut away all the locks that hung below it. I also trimmed his whiskers and mustache until they were only about a half inch long, and tried to do it inartistically, and succeeded, and succeeded. It was a villainous disfigurement. When he got his lubberly sandals on, and his long robe of coarse brown linen cloth, which hung straight from his neck to his ankle bones, he was no longer the comeliest man in his kingdom, but one of the unhandsomest and most commonplace and unattractive. We were dressed and barbered alike, and could pass for small farmers, or farm bailiffs, or shepherds, or carters. Yes, or for village artisans, if we chose, our costume being in effect universal among the poor, because of its strength and cheapness. I don't mean that it was really cheap to be a very poor person, but I do mean that it was the cheapest material there was for male attire. Manufactured material, you understand. We slipped away an hour before dawn, and by broad sun-up had made eight or ten miles, and were in the midst of a sparsely settled country. I had a pretty heavy knapsack, it was laden with provisions, provisions for the king to taper down on till he could take to the course fare of the country without damage. I found a comfortable seat for the king by the roadside, and then gave him a morsel or two to stay his stomach with. Then I said I would find some water for him, and strolled away. Part of my project was to get out of sight and sit down and rest a little myself. It had always been my custom to stand when in his presence, even at the council board, "'except upon those rare occasions "'when the sitting was a very long one, "'extending over hours. "'Then I had a trifling little backless thing "'which was like a reversed culvert "'and was as comfortable as the toothache. "'I didn't want to break him in suddenly, "'but do it by degrees. "'We should have to sit together now when in company, "'or people would notice, "'but it would not be good politics for me "'to be playing equality with him "'when there was no necessity for it.' I found the water some three hundred yards away, and had been resting about twenty minutes when I heard voices. That is all right, I thought. Peasants going to work. Nobody else likely to be stirring this early. But the next moment these comers jingled into sight around the turn of the road, smartly clad people of quality, with luggage mules and servants in their train. I was off like a shot through the bushes by the shortest cut, for a while it did seem that these people would pass the king before I could get to him, but desperation gives you wings, you know, and I canted my body forward, inflated my breast, and held my breath and flew. I arrived, and in plenty good enough time, too. Pardon, my king, but it's no time for ceremony. Jump, jump to your feet. Some quality are coming. Is that a marvel? Let them come. But, my liege, you must not be seen sitting. "'Rise, and stand in humble posture while they pass. "'You are a peasant, you know.' "'Ah, true, I had forgotten that. "'So lost was I in planning of a huge war with Gaul.' "'He was up by this time, but a farm could have got up quicker "'if there was any kind of a boom in real estate. 
"'A humbler attitude, my lord the king, and quick, duck your head, more, still more, droop it.' "'He did his honest best, but, lord, it was no great things. "'He looked as humble as the leaning tower of Pisa. "'It is the most you could say of it. "'Indeed, it was such a thundering poor success "'that it raised wondering scowls all along the line, "'and a gorgeous flunky at the tall end of it raised his whip. "'But I jumped in time and was under it when it fell.' and under cover of the volley of coarse laughter which followed, I spoke up sharply, and warned the king to take no notice. He mastered himself for the moment, but it was a sore tax. He wanted to eat up the procession. I said, It would end our adventures at the very start, and we, being without weapons, could do nothing with that armed gang. If we're going to succeed in our enterprise, we must not only look the peasant, but act the peasant. It is wisdom. None can gainsay it. "'Let us go on, Sir Boss. "'I will take note and learn, and do the best I may.' "'And he kept his word. "'He did the best he could, but I've seen better. "'If you've ever seen an active, heedless, enterprising child "'going diligently out of one mischief and into another all day long, "'and an anxious mother at its heels all the while, "'just saving it by a hair from drowning itself "'or breaking its neck with each new experiment, "'you've seen the king and me.' If I could have foreseen what the thing was going to be like, I should have said, No, if anybody wants to make his living exhibiting the king as a peasant, let him take the layout. I can do better with the menagerie, and last longer. And yet, during the first three days, I never allowed him to enter a hut or other dwelling. If he could pass muster anywhere during his early novitiate, it would be in small inns and on the road. So, to these places we confined ourselves. Yes, "'He certainly did the best he could. "'But what of that? "'He didn't improve a bit that I could see. "'He was always frightening me, "'always breaking out with fresh astonishers, "'in new and unexpected places. "'Toward evening on the second day, "'what does he do but blandly fetch out a dirk "'from inside his robe? "'Great guns, my liege! "'Where did you get that?' "'From a smuggler at the inn yesterday eve. "'What in the world possessed you to buy it?' "'We've escaped diverse dangers by wit, thy wit, "'but I've bethought me that it were but prudence "'if I bore a weapon too. "'Thine might fail thee in some pinch. "'But people of our condition are not allowed to carry arms. "'What would a lord say? "'Yes, or any person of whatever condition, "'if he caught an upstart peasant with a dagger on his person. "'It was a lucky thing for us that nobody came along just then. "'I persuaded him to throw the dirk away.' "'it was as easy as persuading a child "'to give up some bright, fresh, new way of killing itself. "'We walked along, silent and thinking, "'and finally the king said, "'When ye know that I meditate a thing inconvenient, "'or that hath a peril in it, "'why do you not warn me to cease from that project?' "'It was a startling question, and a puzzler. "'I didn't quite know how to take hold of it, or what to say, "'and so, of course, I ended by saying the natural thing, "'But, sire,' "'How can I know what your thoughts are?' "'The king stopped dead in his tracks and stared at me. "'I believe thou wert greater than Merlin, "'and truly in magic thou art, "'but prophecy is greater than magic. "'Merlin is a prophet. "'I saw I had made a blunder. "'I must get back my lost ground. "'After a deep reflection and careful planning, I said, "'Sire, I've been misunderstood. "'I will explain. "'There are two kinds of prophecy.' One is the gift to foretell things that are but a little way off. 
"'The other is the gift to foretell things "'that are whole ages and centuries away. "'Which is the mightier gift, do you think?' "'Well, I'd say the last, most surely.' "'True. Does Merlin possess it?' Mm, partly, yes. "'He foretold mysteries about my birth and future kingship "'that were twenty years away.' "'Has he ever gone beyond that?' "'He would not claim more, I think.' It is probably his limit. All prophets have their limit. The limit of some of the great prophets has been a hundred years. These are few, I ween. There have been two still greater ones, whose limit was four hundred and six hundred years, and one whose limit compassed even seven hundred and twenty. Gramercy, that's marvelous. But what are these in comparison with me? They're nothing. What? "'Canst thou truly look beyond even so vast a stretch of time as—' Seven hundred years? "'My liege, as clear as the vision of an eagle "'does my prophetic eye penetrate and lay bare "'the future of this world for nearly thirteen centuries and a half.' "'My land, you should have seen the king's eyes spread slowly open "'and lift the earth's entire atmosphere as much as an inch. "'That settled Br'er Merlin.' One never had any occasion to prove his facts with these people. All he had to do was state them. It never occurred to anybody to doubt the statement. Now then, I continued, I could work both kinds of prophecy. The long and the short. If I chose to take the trouble to keep in practice, but I seldom exercise any but the long kind, because the other is beneath my dignity. It is proper to Merlin sort, stump-tailed prophets, as we call them in the profession. Of course, I wet up now and then and flirt out a minor prophecy, but not often. Hardly ever, in fact. You will remember that there was a great talk when you reached the Valley of Holiness about my having prophesied your coming and the very hour of your arrival, two or three days beforehand. Hmm, yes, indeed. I mind it now. Well, I could have done it as much as forty times easier and piled on a thousand times more detail into the bargain. "'if it had been five hundred years away "'instead of just two or three days. "'How amazing that it should be so! "'Yes, a genuine expert can always foretell a thing "'that is five hundred years away "'easier than he can a thing that's only five hundred seconds off. "'And yet in reason it should clearly be the other way. "'It should be five hundred times as easy to foretell the last as the first. "'For indeed, it is so close by "'that one uninspired might almost see it.' In truth, the law of prophecy doth contradict the likelihoods, most strangely making the difficult easy and the easy difficult. It was a wise head. A peasant's cap was no safe disguise for it. You could know it for kings under a diving bell if you could hear it work its intellect. I had a new trade now and plenty of business in it. The king was as hungry to find out everything that was going to happen during the next thirteen centuries as if he were expecting to live in them. From that time out, I prophesied myself bald-headed trying to supply the demand. I have done some indiscreet things in my day, but this thing of playing myself for a prophet was the worst. Still, it had its ameliorations. A prophet doesn't have to have any brains. They are good to have, of course, for the ordinary exigencies of life, but they are no use in professional work. It is the restfulest vocation there is. When the spirit of prophecy comes upon you, you merely cake your intellect and lay it off in a cool place for a rest, and unship your jaw and leave it alone, it will work itself. The result is prophecy. 
Every day a knight errant or so came along, and the sight of them fired the king's martial spirit every time. He would have forgotten himself, sure, and said something to them in a style a suspicious shade or so above his ostensible degree, and so I always got him well out of the road in time. Then he would stand and look with all his eyes, and a proud light would flash from them, and his nostrils would inflate like a war-horse's, and I knew he was longing for a brush with them. But about noon of the third day I had stopped in the road to take a precaution which had been suggested by the whip-stroke that had fallen to my share two days before, a precaution which I had afterward decided to leave untaken. I was so loath to institute it. But now I had just a fresh reminder. While striding heedlessly along, with jaw spread and intellect at rest, for I was prophesying, I stubbed my toe and fell sprawling. I was so pale I couldn't think for a moment. Then I got softly and carefully up and unstrapped my knapsack. I had that dynamite bomb in it, done up in wool on a box. It was a good thing to have along. The time would come when I could do a valuable miracle with it, maybe, but it was a nervous thing to have about me, and I didn't like to ask the king to carry it, yet I must either throw it away or think up some safe way to get along with its society. I got it out and slipped it into my scrip, and just then here come a couple of knights. The king stood, stately as a statue, gazing toward them, had forgotten himself again, of course, and before I could get a word of warning out, it was time for him to skip, and well that he did it, too. He supposed they would turn aside. Turn aside? To avoid trampling peasant dirt underfoot? When had he ever turned aside himself, or ever had the chance to do it? If a peasant saw him or any other noble knight in time to properly save him the trouble? The knights paid no attention to the king at all. It was his place to look out himself, and if he hadn't skipped, he would have been placidly ridden down and laughed at besides. The king was in a flaming fury, and launched out his challenge and epithets with the most royal vigor. The knights were some little distance by now. They halted, greatly surprised, and turned in their saddles and looked back, as if wondering if it might be worthwhile to bother with such scum as we. Then they wheeled and started for us. Not a moment must be lost. I started for them. I passed them at a rattling gate, and as I went by, I flung out a hair-lifting, soul-scorching, thirteen-jointed insult, which made the king's effort poor and cheap by comparison. I got it out of the nineteenth century, where they know how. They had such a headway that they were nearly to the king before they could check up. Then, frantic with rage, they stood up their horses on their hind hoofs and whirled them around, and the next moment, here they came, breast to breast. I was seventy yards off then, and scrambling up a great boulder at the roadside. When they were within thirty yards of me, they let their long lances droop to a level, depressed their mailed heads, and so, with their horsehair plumes streaming straight out behind, most gallant to see, this lightning express came tearing for me. When they were within fifteen yards, I sent that bomb with a sure aim, and it struck the ground just under the horses' noses. Yes, it was a neat thing, very neat and pretty to see. It resembled a steamboat explosion on the Mississippi. And during the next fifteen minutes, we stood under a steady drizzle of microscopic fragments of knights and hardware and horseflesh. I say we, for the king joined the audience, of course, as soon as he had got his breath again. There was a hole there which would afford steady work for all the people in that region for some years to come. In trying to explain it, I mean, as for filling it up, that service would be comparatively prompt, and would fall to the lot of a select few, peasants of that scenery, and they wouldn't get anything for it either. 
"'but I explained it to the king myself. "'I said it was done with a dynamite bomb. "'This information did him no damage, "'because it left him as intelligent as he was before. "'However, it was a noble miracle in his eyes, "'and was another settler from Merlin. "'I thought it well enough to explain "'that this was a miracle of so rare a sort "'that it couldn't be done, "'except when the atmospheric conditions were just right. "'Otherwise he'd be encoring it "'every time we had a good subject, "'and that would be inconvenient.' "'because I hadn't any more bums along. "'We'll return with Chapter 28, "'right after these sponsor messages. "'And now Chapter 28, Drilling the King. "'On the morning of the fourth day, "'when it was just sunrise, "'and we had been tramping an hour in the chill dawn, "'I came to a resolution. "'The king must be drilled. "'Things could not go on so.' "'he must be taken in hand and deliberately and conscientiously drilled, "'or we couldn't ever venture to enter a dwelling. "'The very cats would know this masquerader for a humbug and no peasant. "'So I called a halt and said, "'Sire, as between clothes and countenance, you are all right. "'There is no discrepancy. "'But as between your clothes and your bearing, you are all wrong. "'There is a most noticeable discrepancy. "'Your soldierly stride, your lordly port, these will not do.' "'You stand too straight. "'Your looks are too high, too confident. "'The cares of a kingdom do not stoop the shoulders. "'They do not droop the chin. "'They do not depress the high level of the eye glance. "'They do not put doubt and fear in the heart "'and hang out the signs of them in slouching body and unsure step. "'It is the sordid cares of the lowly born that do these things. "'You must learn the trick. "'You must imitate the trademarks of poverty, misery, oppression, insult, and the other several and common inhumanities that sap the manliness out of a man and make him a loyal and proper and approved subject and a satisfaction to his masters, or the very infants will know you for better than your disguise, and we shall go to pieces at the first hut we stop at. Pray try to walk like this. The king took careful note, and then tried an imitation. Pretty fair, pretty fair. Chin a little lower, please. There. Very good. "'Eyes too high. Pray don't look at the horizon. Look at the ground. Ten steps in front of you. "'Ah, that's better. That's very good. Wait, please. You betray too much vigor, too much decision. You want more of a shamble. Look at me, please. Like this. "'Now you're getting it. That's the idea. At least it sort of approaches it. Yes, that's pretty fair. But there's a great big something wanting.' I don't quite know what it is. Please walk thirty yards so that I can get a perspective on the thing. Now, then, your head's right, speed's right, shoulder's right, eyes right, chin right, gait, carriage, general style, all right. And yet the fact remains, the aggregate's wrong. The account don't balance. Do it again, please. Now I think I begin to see what it is. Yes, I've struck it. You see... The genuine spiritlessness is wanting. That's what's the trouble. It's all amateur. Mechanical details all right, almost to a hair. Everything about the delusion perfect, except that it doesn't delude. Well, what, then, must one do to prevail? <sighs> Let me think. I can't seem to get quite at it. In fact, there isn't anything that can right the matter but practice. This is a good place for it. Roots and stony ground to break up your stately gate. "'a region not liable to interruption, "'only one field and one hut in sight, "'and they so far away that nobody could see us from there. 
"'It will be well to move a little off the road "'and put in the whole day drilling you, sire.' "'After the drill had gone on a little while, I said, "'Now, sire, imagine that we're at the door of the hut yonder, "'and the family are before us. "'Proceed, please, across the head of the house.' "'The king unconsciously straightened up like a monument "'and said, with frozen austerity, "'Violet, bring a seat, and serve to me what cheer ye have.' "'Ah, your grace, that's not well done.' "'In what lacketh it?' "'These people do not call each other varlets, for one.' "'Nay, is that true?' "'Yes, only those above them call them so.' "'Then I must try again. I will call him villain.' "'No, no, for he may be a freeman.' "'Ah, so. Then peradventure I should call him goodman.' "'That would answer your grace.' "'but it would still be better if you said friend or brother.' "'Brother? To dirt like that?' "'Ah, but we are pretending to be dirt like that, too. "'You need to get that through your head.' "'Well, that's true. I will say it. "'Brother, bring a seat. "'And thereto what cheer you have withal. "'Now tis right. N "'Not not wholly right. "'You've asked for one, not us. "'For one, not both. "'Food for one. "'A seat for one.' The king looked puzzled. He wasn't a very heavy weight, intellectually. His head was an hourglass. It could stow an idea, but it had to do it at a grain at a time, and not the whole idea at once. "'Would you have a seat also, and sit?' "'If I did not sit, the man would perceive that we are only pretending to be equals, and playing the deception pretty poorly, too.' "'Well, that's well and truly said. How wonderful is truth!' "'Come it in whatsoever unexpected form it may. "'Yes, he must bring out seats and food for both, "'and in serving us present not ewer and napkin "'with more show of respect to the one than to the other. "'And there is even yet a detail that needs correcting. "'He must bring nothing outside. "'We will go in, in among the dirt, "'and possibly other repulsive things, "'and take the food with the household, "'and after the fashion of the house, "'and all on equal terms, "'except the man be of the serf class,' And finally, there will be no ewer and no napkin, whether he be serf or free. Please walk again, my liege. There, that's better. That's the best yet. But still not perfect. The shoulders have known no ignobler burden than iron mail, and they will not stoop. Give me then the bag. I will learn the spirit that goeth with burdens that have not honor. It is the spirit that stoopeth the shoulders, I ween, and not the weight, for armor is heavy. "'Yet it is a proud burden, and a man standeth straight in it. "'Nay, butt me no butts, offer me no objections. "'I will have the thing, strap it upon my back.' "'He was complete now with that knapsack on, "'and looked as little like a king as any man I'd ever seen. "'But it was an obstinate pair of shoulders. "'They could not seem to learn the trick of stooping "'with any sort of deceptive naturalness. "'The drill went on, I prompting and correcting. "'Now, make believe you're in debt.' "'and eaten up by relentless creditors. "'You're out of work, which is horseshoeing, let us say, "'and can get none, and your wife is sick, "'your children are crying because they're hungry. "'And so on and so on. "'I drilled him as representing in turn "'all sorts of people out of luck "'and suffering dire privations and misfortunes. "'But, Lord, it was only just words, words. "'Words. They meant nothing in the world to him. "'I might just as well have whistled. "'Words realized nothing.' "'Vivify nothing to you, unless you have suffered in your own person "'the thing which the words try to describe. 
there are wise people who talk ever so knowingly and complacently about the working classes and satisfy themselves that a day's hard intellectual work is very much harder than a day's hard manual toil and is righteously entitled to much bigger pay. Why, they really think that, you know, because they know all about the one, but haven't tried the other. But I know all about both, and so far as I'm concerned, there isn't enough money enough in the universe to hire me to swing a pickaxe thirty days. But I will do the hardest kind of intellectual work for just as near nothing as you can cipher it down, and I'll be satisfied, too. Intellectual work is misnamed. It is a pleasure, a dissipation, and is its own highest reward. The poorest paid architect, engineer, general, author, sculptor, painter, lecturer, advocate, legislator, actor, preacher, singer, is constructively in heaven when he's at work. And as for the musician with the fiddle bow in his hand, who sits in the midst of a great orchestra, with the ebbing and flowing tides of divine sound washing over him, why, certainly he is at work, if you wish to call it that. But, Lord, it's a sarcasm just the same. The law of work does seem utterly unfair. But there it is, and nothing can change it. The higher the pay and enjoyment the worker gets out of it, the higher shall his pay and cash be also. And it's also the very law of those transparent swindles, transmissible nobility, and kingship. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. If you're enjoying our narration, please do stop a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We'd appreciate that very much, and it helps to convince new listeners to give us a try. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road, and we'll be back next week Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.